I could give you a knight that would light fire in your dreams until you die, and you would reject me. Oh, yes. You shall regret that. I think not. Oh, but you will. Can you explain it, Picard? Just have Mr. Data fetch me in a shuttle and have him bring along a uniform. Did you say uniform? Yes, I did. Babble Cycle Babble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and flimflam artist. And I'm Elizabeth, misunderstood villain and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, happy Halloween! Elizabeth and I are taking Beazelbub to task. The devil is in the details. First up is the animated series classic, The Magics of Megas 2, written by Larry Brody. It aired as part of the 1973 first season and was, of course, directed by Hal Sutherland. The Enterprise has arrived at the galaxy's center. Something, something continuity, moving on. Their mission of scientific investigation goes awry when they're pulled into some sort of cosmic vortex and systems start to fail. Staring down their doom... A being who calls himself Lucian, and looks an awful lot like the popular depiction of the Christian devil, appears on the bridge, and, after showing off his abilities for a bit, he transports Kirk and the command crew to his homeworld of Megas II. Megas II is a place where magic, in its familiar western guises, is the governing principle instead of physics or logic. All our women are as young and beautiful as they want to be. Do you need a room, a stable, a castle? Stop in at your friendly sorcerer contractor. Let him do the work. In order to function, the galactic creation point must extend through space, time, into another dimension where the logic of things is totally different. It took magic to get your vessel working again. Magic you, my friends, don't know how to work. But then you never did know, did you? Lucian, you keep calling us friends, implying that you know us. How? There are no rivals anywhere in our universe, Captain Kirk. No other life forms at all. Millennia ago, in our search for companionship, we Megans passed through the point between dimensions, and eventually we found ourselves on your world, Earth. He suddenly becomes afraid of being discovered and sends the crew back to the ship, where Spock begins experimenting with using magic, and succeeds. The crew's exploits with magic alert the Megans to their presence, which is what Lucian was afraid would happen, and they find themselves under siege by the non-corporeal aliens, until, by magic of course, the crew are transported to the gallows during a witch trial in the 17th century Salem, Massachusetts. The prosecutor, Asmodeus, explains... We came to your world as friends, but wherever we went, the story was invariably the same. Some humans would attempt to use us to gain power, to serve their own greed and lust. When we refused to serve them, they turned against us and taught other humans to fear us, to hate. 
They called us devils, warlocks, evil sorcerers. Those of us who survived came to the town of Salem in Massachusetts as settlers and tried to live like other men. But you made mistakes, used your powers. And burned for it. Burned as witches. Traumatized, the Megans retreated to the world and abandoned exploration. Spock volunteers to speak on humanity's behalf as an outsider and calls on first Lucian, then Kirk, to defend humanity's record to the Megans. Kirk upholds their development since the 1600s and cites the Prime Directive. Asmodeus and the other Megans accept this evidence and acquit the humans, but condemn Lucian to eternal isolation for his past, appealing to Lucian's history as, you know, Satan. Kirk refuses to let Lucian be condemned, and he and Asmodeus have a wizard battle, eh, but it's all just a test by the Megans to see whether humans had actually changed in their attitudes, as Kirk claimed. Elliot, thank you so much for doing these great synopses of our episodes. They are hilarious <laughs> and delightful, and um, I, I know I appreciate them, and I, I, I assume and hope that our listeners do as well, so just thank you. I tried. Something, 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 something continuity. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's tricky because... Our podcast is, yes, it's for Trek nerds, absolutely, but it's also not necessarily, it's for people interested in psychology and discussing those themes, and I want to make some of this lore penetrable for those who aren't necessarily watching every episode, like you and I are. Well, it's, you, you do a great job, and, and hey, like I love Star Trek and cannot remember plot lines to save my life. So if I hadn't rewatched these recently, I would be like, what happens in that episode? So I'm sure there are other people who do that too. So thank you. Uh, Yeah, well, speaking of nerdy sort of continuity things, um, what this episode makes me think of, okay, a little bit of history here. So the original pitch for this episode, which was going to be part of the original series uh, by Gene Roddenberry, was for Kirk to meet God. Something which, what? well, we've talked about this before. It's something <laughs> what would eventually happen in Star Trek V, um, and that did not turn out so well. What does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim. You don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Then here is the proof you see. But at the time, even for the animated series, that was going too far. But for whatever reason, the censors were like, you can't talk to God, but you can talk to the devil. Okay, so that's how we get our episode. But there's some irony here, especially with Spock's role as one, the person who is like, yes, I guess I'll just do magic since we're in a place where magic is the governing law and to the person to defend humanity's record um, because Spock's appearance with his ears and stuff made yeah. audiences in the 1960s, associate, especially like evangelical Christians and things, associate him with the devil. And he, you remember when we talked about the pilot? Really? Yeah, I know. You remember the pilot, really? the cage? which had Spock in it, as well as a bunch of other, you know, number one and things, which we see now in Strange New Worlds. Uh, Spock was one of the things that the censors at NBC, um, the producers were insisting that he get rid of in order to have the series go forward. And Spock was one of those things that he was like, no, I'm not going to compromise about this. And thank goodness, obviously, 
take the devil he didn't because then we wouldn't have Spock. Yay, Gene Roddenberry for sticking to your guns. Like now that I say that phrase out loud, I don't like that idiom. But you know, I'll stick. I'll stick with it. But like, I'm so glad that you know. Yay, yay for Spock. I'm glad he's here. Exactly. So uh, it's a goofy plot, as is pretty much par for the course of the animated series. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't know. What were some of the themes that sort of stuck out to you here? Well, I think one of the biggest themes that struck out to me was like questioning what is actually evil you know Mm. like like even just you said like oh evangelical viewers in the 60s because of spock's pointy ears didn't like him and associated with the devil it had everything to do with how he looked and nothing like how he acted wonder what that reminds you of um and also then we have this like pretty obvious depiction of the devil who's actually kind of a nice guy maybe a little overly friendly but you know he's not he's not bad welcome i knew eventually humans would come searching for me who are you call me lucian call me friend never could i abandon those who come to rollick with me <laughs> friend kirk um you're like well you're you're being very friendly very quickly okay yeah. here we go i don't know and, and so like that that questioning of like what is good and what is evil i think kind of like i i saw that coming up a lot you know are humans good or evil are these aliens good or evil um you know the these aliens were burned as witches on earth and humans called them evil but was it really the humans doing the evil act there so i think that like I don't know, like that that I find very interesting is mm-hmm. like this like re this this upending of these um old concepts and reexamination of them. Yeah, the the association here is that uh Lucian is, you know, his his goal as a, as a Megan yeah. was to introduce humans to magic to like offer them things. And of course our conception of the devil in christianity especially but generally speaking in our western mythologies even non-western mythologies that the idea of a devil is always uh, connected to temptation right Mm -hmm. and trek is turning that on its head a little bit because it's saying like having that temptation is not automatically associated with with as you say with evil with 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 hell it's like having the temptation to do things any sufficiently advanced technology will appear to be magic right and so we don't necessarily have to break apart what this galaxy center magic thing is it's just some alternative physics that appears to be magic uh to the humans and that because because it offers shortcuts to their lives Mm. right like moving the chess piece with your mind creating a beautiful woman for sulu which I know. Uh, oh, that was really funny to see. I'm like, that's not, that's not what he's going to want, but nice job. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? It's like that because it's a, it's a temptation to quote unquote cheat um, the sort of natural order of things or the like perceived necessary steps that you have to go through to, Yeah. you know what I mean? I think that's a really good way to frame it, um, that it's not temptation in and of itself that's evil, but it's the temptation to, like, circumvent something that you should be doing, you know? And, like, I think that's a pretty good way to think about it. Because I, I think if you just say all temptation is bad, that that starts to, like, lead into, like, stoicism a little mm-hmm. bit, 
which is the idea, which in a way is very Vulcan too. If you think uh. about that, like, you know, it's just like, no, everything is logical and rational and calm and you have to suppress any kind of desire or pleasure or, you know, like um, that you want and like feeling that is actually kind of bad. And like, that's not the way you should live at all. Like that's, I'm not trying to bash stoicism. There are some things about it that I admire. But on the whole, I'm relatively hedonistic. Um, so I'm just like, I'm just kind of on the opposite end of that. I'm like, no, like, like I think you should be able to enjoy your life, you know, and however that looks. Um, and so I just, I'm really appreciating delineating temptation and how it's used um, and, not, and not just saying all temptation is bad. Yeah, I do like that it comes full circle with this idea that uh, Stoicism is very Vulcan. Spock is a Vulcan. Spock is the devil. <laughs> and the devil saves us. And Kirk doesn't save the devil because William Shatner, I mean, Kirk doesn't need that added to his ego that he, <laughs> you know, rescued the devil. That's all I'm going to say on that one. Yeah, there's something um, about the fact that it was Gene Ronberry and William Shatner who has his kind of understanding character. It's just like, boy, this was a match made in heaven. Or hell. <laughs> TNG's fourth season and the 1991 episode Devil's Due. It was written by Philip Lezebnik and William Douglas Lansford and directed by Tom Benko. We set the mood with a trip to the holodeck. Data tries his hand at Ebenezer Scrooge, and despite Picard's praise, Data's project is to attempt to use method acting to get a handle on this whole having emotions thing. I'm aware that I do not effectively convey the fear called for in the story. Well, you've never known fear, Data. But as a, an acute observer of behavior, you should be able to approximate it. Sir, that is not an appropriate basis for an effective performance. Not by the standards set by my mentors. Your mentors? Yes, sir. I have studied the philosophies of virtually every known acting master. I find myself attracted to Stanislavski, Adler, Garnoff, proponents of an acting technique known as the method. Anyway, the plot kicks off properly with a message from Ventax 2. The populace is panicking and rioting out of a very real fear that their world is about to come to an end. The Enterprise arrives in time to rescue one of the Federation Anthropological Observers, who explains, Several years ago, Akos Jared, the Ventaxian head of state, began to grow uh, increasingly obsessed with the legend of Ardra. With each passing day, he grew more anxious and he'd talk about little else. Ardra is coming back. Ardra will be here soon. We must all leave before Ardra returns. And who is this Ardra? For all intents and purposes, the devil. To whom, according to legend, the Ventaxians sold their souls. Signs of her timely return, previsaged by a contract Ventax holds with Ardra, have sent the people into a panic, endangering planetary stability and the lives of the remaining Federation observers. When Picard and his team beam down to handle the situation, Ardra herself finally appears and stakes her claim to the planet. She also claims to be the same devil from the mythologies of other worlds, including the Klingons and humans. 
I am Mendora in the Berusian cluster, Torak to the Drellians. The Klingons call me Feklar. You are not Feklar. <laughs> ah, but I am. I am the guardian of Great Or, where the dishonored go when they die. But here on Ventex 2, I am called Ardra. Picard is able to secure the release of the Federation hostages very quickly, as Ardra now has full command over the locals, but refuses to abandon Ventex 2 to this person, whom he sees as a con artist. The crew theorize that artist's tricks are the result of dramatically presented manifestations of technologies, which they can understand and reproduce, and set out to find evidence and prove Artra's fraudulence. Picard, however, is um, bedeviled by the appearance of Ardra on his bridge and her claim to the Enterprise along with the planet it orbits. Although he finds her threats empty, he is determined to defeat this problem through legal means, and it is through the interpretation of law that the Fantaxians have found themselves so terrorized. He puts data on the case. Eventually, the parties find themselves in a kind of trial. Picard is at first unable to explain Ardra's apparent magical power, but he focuses his energies in drawing attention to the nature of the contract between Ardra and Fentax II. It sounds as if, with a lot of courage, hard work, your ancestors changed this world all by themselves. Objection. The advocate is drawing conclusions. Sustained. I will draw my own conclusions if you do not mind. Sir? But the underlying belief of the locals overrides the speciousness of her claims. Thanks to the efforts of Geordi, however, Picard is able finally to expose the means of her magic, a cloaked ship, and co-opt her illusions before the Vintaxian leader. Her con exposed, Ardra is arrested, and the Enterprise makes its exit. So while it has very little to do with the overall plot in a direct way, I love Data being Scrooge <laughs> as like the cold open in this episode. Why do you doubt your senses? Because... A little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be a bit of undigested beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. <laughs> Why, there's more of gravy than of grave about you. Whatever you are. Humbug, I tell you. Yeah. And, and just the way that he's like trying to understand uh, human emotion, but I also think this idea about, like, how do you know what you know, emotional awareness, objectivity, subjectivity, like, are themes that appear throughout the whole episode. And I think this is just done in a really subtle way that's also, like, really funny. Like, I, th I just find it really funny when actors are playing non-actors who are talking about acting. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know, like, I just, that makes me giggle inside. Yeah, it became kind of a running gag in TNG where especially Patrick Stewart is sort of involved in these um, acting lessons and coaching things, but also claims, like he tells Beverly at some point with one of her plays. Ah, yes. Well, it's, uh, it's a very intriguing drama, but I really don't have the time it would take to learn a part. And uh, anyway, I'm not much of an actor. And they're winking at the camera. Even here, he's like... Method acting. I'm vaguely familiar with it, but... Why would you choose such an old-fashioned approach? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's Patrick Stewart. And it's also Brent Spiner. Let's not forget, a man, the man's been on Broadway. He's incredible. And yeah. here he is, obviously, doing a bang-up job as Scrooge. But it's all 
I find the idea of what he says really fascinating. Since I have no emotional awareness to create a performance, I am attempting to use performance to create emotional awareness. In other words, um, trying to relate their own experience as a real person to the experience of the character they're playing so that the emotions they convey as that character seem authentic to the audience. Yeah. Um, and he's, because he doesn't quote unquote have emotions, uh, which is obviously an episode we'll do another day because that's a question. But um, he's using an emotional performance to create an emotional awareness in himself, or at least trying to. Mm -hmm. And uh, not only do I find that fascinating, but like with most of the best written data scenes or episodes in TNG and outside of TNG, um, it is using the conceit of data lacking this human awareness and this emotional awareness to make a commentary on the condition of, of being human as often they did with Spock and, and they did later with Odo and seven, nine, these kind yeah. of things. He's, he's that character. Right. But it's just so clever because you want, you, you, you see this robot doing robot things and at, on, at the surface, it seems very um, like alien in that way because it's like, well, gosh, you don't have emotions. That's so completely unrelatable to any human being. Yeah. But on the other hand, what he's doing is totally relatable. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Well, how is it totally relatable? Like, I, I, I don't quite see it, though I want, I want to believe you. We take for granted that we have actual emotional awareness all the time or mm. i guess perfect emotional awareness or really oh, ha, cognizant ha. We do articulate not. About, well, <laughs> right I, I think i've talked to you enough <laughs> to know that that's absolutely not true but we pretend like it's true we pretend like we're fully aware of what we're feeling and why we're feeling it but no, no. and so this idea of of exercising that through acting i think is actually really interesting in that we convey the emotional state that we want to present and in so doing maybe discover something. Yeah. You know, I haven't studied acting very much at all. So it, like, but I do remember reading this book, like the singing actor back in college and, and there is an argument for a type of acting of like, rather than trying to figure out what the character is feeling you know, like the like the internal kind of sense of it. Rather, like you want to try to find out. You want to try to find out the what the character would do and how they would do it. When two people are talking, that we have uh, a neurological framework that's um, often called mirror neurons that we use to track the other person's like body awareness, uh, body that we use to track the other person's body posture, their facial expressions. And part of us, there's part of our unconscious mechanism that essentially, if you see my hand being raised, you are going to actually, part of your body is going to prepare to move your hand in the exact same way. Like, it's like you know what it would be like to move your hand in the same way that I'm moving it. And that mirror neuron function essentially allows us to start to simulate each other's body states. And the argument mm -hmm. is that once, if you can simulate each other's body state, you can also start to um, simulate the emotional expression that comes out of that certain kind of body state. And that's the basis for empathy. And I find that really, really fascinating. And that's kind of what Data is doing. He's trying to create, mm -hmm. 
He's trying to create the structure through which emotion can flow. It makes total sense when you describe it, but you don't, you, you, we, we tend to think of empathy as working the other way, yeah. of recognizing the, the underlying emotional state um, first, somehow. I mean, that's kind of Troy's character, right? She, she literally reads your mind and senses your emotions, which is impossible <laughs> um, for, for humans. Um, we actually get a lot of our empathy through picking up on cues which are not themselves the emotions but just the, the container i think is the word you would the word you would use yeah right? yeah for their expression and that's what data is picking up on which yeah i love that yeah um let's talk about the devil okay <laughs> you know, the ardra devil here so what seems to inspire the idea of ardra in this story is this the faustian bargain right of course we mm. associate faust and the devil and all of that and, and the idea of temptation and the the, the presence of the devil being con connected to legalism and contracts and specifically like how belief and legalism intersect um it it it's it really really interesting because they uh, the the uh, Ventaxians, on the one hand, they do fear Ardra herself, like her abilities to create earthquakes and, and whatnot. That's that's a part of it. But I think more fundamentally, it's about the fact that they believe that everything that they have, their peace and their prosperity and, and all of that, is the result of her honoring her end of this contract. Is there any doubt in your mind, any doubt at all, that if I had not intervened, the terrible conditions here would have continued. I remind you that you're under oath. No doubt at all. Then, as former head of state for the Ventaxian people, you are satisfied that I fulfilled my part of the bargain. Yes, Ardra. Thank you. Your Honor, what more can be said? Both sides agree the terms of the contract have been fulfilled. And if they themselves don't honor their end, then they're they're fucked, right? I think that's a more fundamental part of the belief here and the function of the devil of yeah. like holding you to your obligation in these bargains. Yeah, there's kind of like a, a, a reciprocity that they're trying to codify, I think, yeah. of like, I do this and you do this and together this will work, but only if we both do, only if we both do our part. Um, and, you know, I think in this Ardra example, it's been taken a little bit to the extreme. Hey, it's television. How are you going to make drama happen? I don't know. I'm, I'm in grad school and I have papers to write and homework to do. And sometimes I don't want to do it, you know, and you know, no one's been in that situation where it's like, I have this thing to do and I don't want to do it, but I know I need to, I know I need to brush my teeth before I go to bed and I know I should recycle and I know I should, you know, do all these things. And like, how do you, how do you make that contract or bargain with yourself to do the things that you know, you should do, even though if part of you doesn't want to, um, and I find that interesting, especially that this whole like culture, essentially like they were going, they were like approaching the edge of a cliff and they were like, how do we keep ourselves from self-destruction? It's like there's a, a fundamental need for that dynamic mm. of temptation. If like the temptation is not going to come, um, they're going to be tempted to be self-destructive if not for this 
imagined, probably, um, deal that they make. I'm assuming there wasn't really a godlike figure named Audra who really made this contract with these people. I think it, right. I, you know, I'm going with the assumption that it was developed like most mythology, you know, which was this is part of the people and it was coalesced into this symbol that was easily digestible and and circumscribed the idea that they were trying to capture you know and then how can you work with it once you can kind of delineate it in that kind of way i'm assuming that's how this all went down so there's my basis of my argument um and if that's true then what was it about having a dialogue with the devil and temptation that allowed them to do good you know, do they really have to separate the good and the bad in order to pursue the good? You know, mm. like, okay, I will hold, maybe that was it. Maybe Ardra, like the representational evil, was saying, I will hold all the evil back so that you can prosper, but I'm going to need something in return. And there was, for some reason, they needed to kind of separate that, maybe, because there might have been too much evil at the time. That's that's a common thing um, in in fiction, in mythology, possibly in real life, although that's debatable, where there's always this, um, you know, paying the piper thing. There's always this sense mm-hmm. of, of, of you have to uh, pay, pay a price for whatever good um, you squeeze out of life. I want to argue that that's a story that it's always that case. It doesn't have yeah. to always be that case. But if that's the story you're telling yourself, there's no other options. I think it also creates a, a bit of a structure mm. for their for their society and for their, their their sort of belief systems, which is evidenced by the fact that so at first Picard is um, essentially telling the Vintaxians in this trial setting, look, there's no actual evidence that whoever Ardra was or wasn't, or if this person is her or not, doesn't like if we look at it subjectively, you guys did this for yourselves, you. Uh, curbed your pollution and 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 found peace and all these sort of things she didn't what does it say did she not even pick up one piece of trash why do you have to have this association with this mythical being and it's to me it's a very compelling argument obviously to picard it is um but then ardra looks at him and says look do you believe that i'm ardra and that i'm responsible for this he's like yes absolutely he's not moved whatsoever by this argument it's only when picard is able to disprove her up her powers that he's ah okay this isn't her but the underlying belief structure um where it's this sort of faith-based argument and it's this idea that these things only happen societal changes only happen um reforms only happen because of divine interference that is a fundamental neurological structure for this for this culture that Picard is not, has not overcome in his argument right all he's done is proven that this particular idol is a false idol yeah yeah and that's like a whole can of worms i mean the the classical study of rhetoric and like how do you make an argument i think is really applicable to like what you're saying because these people we're convinced by a faith-based emotional argument and it's going to take a faith-based emotional argument to make that change. Mm. You know, like we all, we all have different ways of, we all, there's all, there's different ways of knowing there's different ways of making an argument of convincing someone 
of your position of sharing information. Like there's a lot of different ways in which you can kind of um, dress and envelope the information that you're trying to like give out. And, and I just, to me that it's like, it's the emotional versus the logical argument essentially. And emotion is so much stronger than logic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so sad, but so true. To oh. me anyway. <laughs> Um, the last sort of piece of this that I found really interesting is uh, Picard in all of this. So mm-hmm. his actual dilemma, which is these um, Federation anthropologists being held hostage in the midst of the Vintaxians panicking, yeah. that problem is solved pretty like in Act One or maybe Act Two. You're um, right; it was solved very quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like yeah. this. Well, it's and I feel like it's intentional in the script. Um, it's like that at that point. You would think some version of the prime directive applies here, where which Picard is often uh, famously like adhering to pretty pretty strictly, uh, and yet he's like, "I refuse to abandon this planet to that woman." It's like, okay, Picard, um, and I don't, you know, I feel similarly to him emotionally, and that like, you know, and I think we all do. We don't want these people to be taken advantage of by this huckster, but at the same time, the fact that Picard is so at odds with his usual prime directive self and it's yeah. like emotionally invested in helping these people is it stuck out to me often when there's that kind of like charged reaction to somebody you're like whoa i really don't like you for a very intense reason that i don't quite understand um when that happens that usually means that you're you're seeing a part of yourself in them that you don't want to see there's a concept in union psychology that who you think you are is much bigger than you actually realize. Kind of like we, we, you know, alluding to the, you think we, you know, everything that's going on. No, there's so much going on underneath the surface that you, you can't always see. And part of what you can't see is your own shadow. It's the part of you that's in the darkness that you either can't see or don't want to see. And when other people show you the part of yourself that's in your shadow, you get like there's a charge to it, and you get really angry at them for re- non-rational reasons. And I I wonder if that's what's happening with Picard. Like, hey, mm. here's here's this woman who's really charismatic. People look up to her. Um, she has power over people and has a kind of charisma you know those are those are all ways you can also describe picard but she's using right. it in a very different way and it's a little manipulative so ardor is you're saying Ardra's a, a kind of shadow for picard i think so episode, yeah and that's why he's reacting well that does make some sense because do you remember the episode it's one of my favorites called who watches the watchers it's from like a season prior it's one where the enterprise here we go. <laughs> the Enterprise discovers uh, a planet, uh, again, with Vulcans, uh, like proto-Vulcans, and through a bunch of uh, misunderstandings, they start worshipping Picard as a god. I do remember this, um, yes. You remember that now? Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Picard is, like, horrified by this and yeah. has to step in and, and get them to realize that he's not a god. I cannot, I will not impose a set of commandments on these people. To do so violates the very essence of the Prime Directive. Like it or not, we have rekindled the Mentarkin's belief in the Overseer. And are you saying that this belief will eventually become a religion? It's inevitable. Horrifying. And the idea then that someone would, 
through the very similar means, obviously with different intentions, but similar means of like, they have advanced technology that is not understood to be that, appears to be magic, um, worship this person, in this case, Ardra, as a god or as a devil. Yeah. And she, very much as Picard would never do, uh, takes advantage of that to, to yeah. be their um, to be their deity. So in that sense, it, it completely makes sense what you say, where she is this, she is his devil self. She's his shadow self. Yeah. Um, and yeah, her behaving exactly the way he wouldn't with a similar situation uh, is, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. finish up with Barge of the Dead from Voyager's sixth season. It was written by Ronald D. Moore and Brian Fuller, directed by Mike Vahar, and aired in 1999. Bellana crash lands a damaged shuttle into the Voyager shuttle bay after chasing after a lost probe. When I give you an order, I expect you to follow it. I told you to return to Voyager, not chase the probe into the center of an ion storm. We only have one multispatial probe. I didn't want to lose it. We only have one Bellana Taurus. I don't want to lose her either. Understood. Lana. I'm glad you made it back in one piece. Did you just call me Lana? I suppose I did. That's what my mother used to call me. Chakotay pops by Tora's quarters later with a souvenir from the shuttle, a piece of metal with Klingon markings. Weird. Weirder is that after he leaves, the metal starts bleeding and crying out in Klingon. Weird, even still, is that the blood doesn't look like Pepto-Bismol. Without a lack of corroborating evidence, Tora's friends assume she's hit her head too hard, but things on board continue to be just a little bit off. Janeway accidentally calls her Lana, like Tora's mother used to. Neelix shows up at 3am to congratulate her on her the discovery of the artifact, and Tuvok, during one of their anti-anger meditation sessions, marks her face with a batliff. Then, in quite a Klingon tone, he berates her for her dishonor. Is it just me, or has everyone gone Klingon happy? Oh, come on, Bolana. They're all doing this for you. Well, then they don't know me very well. And if you even think of joining in on this embrace your heritage nonsense, I swear, I'll rip out your tongue and wear it as a belt. <laughs> oh, no, there's not a lot of Klingon in you. I inherited the forehead and the bad attitude. That's it. All of this revolves around a theme. Tora's lingering tensions with her Klingon heritage, specifically related to her mother who always wanted her daughter to embrace this facet of herself. The weirdness on board culminates with a vision, it would seem, of the crew being murdered by Klingons. Torres is struck with a batleth again and appears suddenly on a wooden ship, the Barge of the Dead. An old warrior informs her that her dishonored soul is being ferried to Grethor, Klingon Hell. Kortar, the Barge's captain, tells Torres that it's not her time yet. Before Torres awakens in the real Voyager, she never actually landed her shuttle and was found adrift, nearly dead. She sees her mother, Miral, materialize on the barge, doomed to hell. If it was real, then she's dead. Bellana, your mother, the barge of the dead, these are just symbols. It's your subconscious mind trying to tell you something. Tell me what? That my mother is going to hell? You need time to digest what you experienced. You have to interpret the symbols and search for their meaning. What if there is no symbolism to interpret? 
What if the afterlife is real? As we learned in Sins of the Father, see episode 30 on scapegoats, further research into Klingon mythology indicates that Morel's fate has been sealed by Tora's dishonorable conduct. She wants to induce a life-threatening coma to return to the barge and rescue her mother. Janeway at first denies this request for obvious reasons, but Torres appeals to the right to practice her spiritual beliefs and to her desire to resolve her issues with her mother, and Janeway relents to a limited controlled procedure. With the coma induced, Torres returns to the barge of the dead and finds morale. Their old arguments reignite almost immediately. Balana at first intends to cheat by performing a transference ritual and claiming her mother's place. Oh, I should have known. You choose the easy way. What are you talking about? Do you know the risks I've taken to save you? You still understand nothing about being a Klingon. I would rather face damnation with what little honor you have left me than cheat my way into Stovokor. But Kortar isn't so easily fooled. Torres relents and chooses to die and be condemned for real, despite Morel's objections. Miral is sent to Stovacor, and Torres is escorted to the gates of Grethor. In sickbay, Torres' coma deepens and she begins to slip away. Torres is pushed by a vision of Tuvok and his Batleth over the threshold and finds herself in a hellish parody of Voyager. The vision, crew, and her mother lay out the totality of her sins. Milana's misdeeds have led her to Grethor. She comes with no valor, no glory, nothing to celebrate in song and story really have no one to blame but yourself. You've kept us all at arm's length. Even Tom, who you claim to love. Here, here. I tried to assist you in making engineering more efficient, but you resisted. You're stubborn. She inherited that from her mother, along with the forehead. What do you think of the afterlife so far? It's not exactly what I had in mind. Are you interpreting all the symbols? Searching your subconscious for their meaning? Lieutenant Torres, defend yourself. <laughs> you want me to fight? You want me to be a good little Klingon? Is that it? You've let your anger consume you. Now it's consuming us. She's condemned us all. Misery loves company. Get away from me! Or what? You'll kill us where we stand? This is no secret by season six, but she reveals that she's tired of fighting and that it's that vulnerability which saves her. She awakens in sickbay with the hope of reuniting with her mother one day and the prospect of a refreshed relationship with her friends and family on Voyager. I have to say, I loved this episode. There was a lot of psychological wisdom that was like weaved into this episode that at a breakneck speed, <laughs> I, like, I will admit that, but like there was some, there was some really nice stuff in there. Yeah, it's a really nice one. Um, there's a lot of actually really good stuff in this for very particular chunk of, of Voyager's run. Um, yeah. And th this, this dream sequence thing is a, is a trope, or I should say is a, is a device that is used throughout Star Trek very often. It's not always very successful, but it's, it's interesting because despite different eras going all the way back to the original series and there, and going all the way to now, there was a dream sequence in the most recent season of strange new worlds. Um, and mm. it's, uh, it's interesting that they keep going back to this device because on some levels it's so theatrical. It's so not TV. You know what I mean? It's so um, it's using the, the, the standing props and the standing characters to like tell you things uh, yeah. about what's going on. It's like, 
boy, th this can be really corny. <laughs> I think it works really well in this episode. I don't know if I'm corny at all, but it's just interesting that this keeps reappearing. Well, I, I hear that it's a little bit of an exhausted trope for you. <laughs> and, and I want to make the argument that that's how our psyche unconscious works. It takes symbols from our life that we have associated meanings to, and it uses those symbols to try to communicate something to us. So it's literally in the blueprint. Mm. Sorry. If, so that's why, so I get that it's just like, oh man, here's this thing again. That's what archetypes are. They just show up again. And, and actually there's a name for that when these kind of figures that may or may not be known to you come into your dreams. Um, they're called psychopomps. 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 Yeah. Have you not, have you heard that word before? No, that's funny. <laughs> what <laughs> you've uh, objected to a lot of the terminology in, um, in psychoanalysis because of bad associations before, but I, the only association that in my mind with psychopomps is like psychotic cheerleaders with pom-poms. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm going to think of nothing else now when I think of that word. Thank you. I like the term psychopomps because I don't think it's used in other contexts very much. So like the meaning is a little less vague. Yeah. Um, but psychopomps are mythic figures who appear in your dreams or in these like altered states of reality. These like, you know, psychic alternate dimensions. You can think of it that way too. Um, and they're guides, you know, psychopomps often, you know, they can lead you to the afterlife, you know, like, um, Sharon and the river sticks is technically a psychopomp. Mm. They, they, they're a guide along, uh, they're a guide along a journey. You can think of them that way. Sometimes they can be animals. We talk to animals. It's a native American tradition. Animals. Our own counselors. We're taught that an animal guide accompanies us through life. Basically, it's what Carl Jung thought he invented when he came up with his active imagination technique in 1932. But we've been doing pretty much the same thing for centuries. Is there a different animal guide for everyone? Actually, yes. Let me guess. Yours is a bear. Sometimes they can be people that you don't know. You know, they're just like this random person in your dream. That can be a psychopomp. And sometimes they are people you know. And when it's someone you know, like Chakotay says, my grandfather used to think he could transform himself into a wolf so that he could venture out to explore the spirit realm. It was real to him, as real as what you experienced was to you. But that doesn't mean he grew hair all over his body and walked around on all fours. Think about Tuvok in um, that first sequence before Balana realizes that she's actually on the barge of the dead. He's not acting like Tuvok. Like, right. that isn't Tuvok. That is a psychopomp wearing a Tuvok costume. Listen to yourself whine like a Ferengi. Patak! You're not worthy of the blood in your veins. A true Klingon would try to kill me where I stand. What the hell has gotten into you? This exercise is over. You are dismissed, Lieutenant. And take your dishonor with you. Why? Right. And so... It's interesting revisiting Tuvok and Torres here because so this goes back to an episode from the previous season um, where Torres succumbs to her anger issues uh, in a way which is really damaging to her. You have a long history of emotional volatility. 
The point of this exercise is not to atone for past transgressions, but to prevent future ones. You can't order someone to meditate. Commander Chakotay thinks otherwise. Try to recall a time <clears throat> when you experienced uncontrollable anger. Daniel Bird? I beg your pardon. He was one of my classmates in grammar school. He was always terrorizing me. He used to point at my cranial ridges and tease me about being half Klingon. So I attacked him once, during recess. On the gyro swing, I disengaged the centrifugal governor. He was spinning so fast he almost flew apart. Then I yanked him off the swing and started pounding his little face. If Miss Melvin hadn't showed up, I probably would Describe would've... the anger you felt at that moment. I... I wanted to hurt him. To take revenge for all the humiliation he'd caused me. Your anger was a source of strength. It protected you, gave you courage. I suppose it did. Maybe the meditation's working. What makes you say that? From what Neelix told me, you kept your temper in check over there. Don't expect me to make a habit of it. So that's the relationship that is now existent between her and the real Tuvok, is he's the person who is supposed to provide her wisdom for controlling her anger. Right. And yeah. then the psycho pomp version of him is a manifestation of Klingon anger. Right. He's like pissed off yeah. at her for being dishonorable. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a really sophisticated use of a psycho pomp. You know, like l look at how much is communicated just by the costume, by the mm. mask, you know. And especially the juxtaposition of that mask with the content behind it. Like, that speaks volumes. And, and I think you're right. Like, there's these different manifestations of anger and guidance and, and confusion, you know? Yeah. Tell me what you want me to be! A good Starfleet officer! A good Marquis! Lover! Daughter! Just tell me what you want from me! We don't want anything from you, Balano. We only want you. We're not your enemies. Defend yourself. Yeah, right. And and the conflagration of uh, Miral, her mom, and Janeway, her her captain. Yeah. Um, it speaks to that too, and that's uh, built into the story, obviously, in this idea of relationships to authority, relationships to maternity, all of that stuff. I, I think. I, I, I love this word just because it's fun. It's fun to say, but it's also a very useful um, uh, thing to return to in Star Trek. We're going to see as we keep doing this, lots of examples of psychopomps uh, throughout the episodes. Yeah. To me, the most striking line that we get here is from Miral, and she says to Torres as they are resuming their uh, their arguments. Right, the same argument they've been having most of their life. I may have believed in you as a child, but not anymore. If you didn't still believe, you wouldn't be here. I did everything that the ritual told me to do. I came back for you. Forget the ritual. It's meaningless. Meaningless? I died for you. No, you didn't. It's not your time. <sighs> you still don't understand this journey. Then tell me. Request denied. What do you want? Who are you asking? You! 
Kalis! The Tooth Fairy! Anybody who will tell me what I'm supposed to do! You are the only one who can answer that question. Now, obviously, this morale, to, to me, is related to what we were just talking about. That means that this morale has to be a psychopomp as opposed to Torres actually being in the afterlife, although that's a possible interpretation. But um, the reason being that her mother, as a devout Klingon, wouldn't say that. For her, the Barge of the Dead and Greythor and all of that is the real thing that happens to you no matter what. When you die, you, you go to hell <laughs> or you go to Strovacor. Um, oh, yeah, right? yeah. So her saying to Torres... I mean, I think... It, I think good. Yeah, no, I think if you're thinking of it in a very, like, evangelical, literal interpretation of, of Klingon scripture, yeah, it's like, well, heaven and hell are real regardless of whether you believe it or not. So even if you don't believe it, that's what's happening. Like, it's very, very literal. And that wouldn't surprise me if Klingons, like, had that um, disposition. You're here because you still believe in it, not because, well, this is what happens. Right. And whether or not all Klingons have that same relationship isn't material. The point is, Miral, at yeah. least our understanding of her through Torres, would believe that. Um, so the fact that she, this this psychopomp version of Miral, says, no, 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 you're here because you believe, something about you still believes, therefore you're, you're here, says that th what this is really about for Torres is about her confronting this belief and trying to um, figure out what relationship she still has to it at this point in her life. And this is the yeah. aspect of faith and belief that I, again, re miss in, in, um, in DS9. We talked about this a little bit. <laughs> in fact, we went on several tangents about this when we were talking about resurrection a few weeks ago. Um, and it's... You know, DS9 confronts religion far more often than, than uh, Voyager yeah. does uh, because of the Bajorans and all that. But it's that aspect of, of faith that I think is the most useful for discussion um, to, to a universal audience. Is this idea that this is important to you. This is coming from your internal psychological need to have this discussion, to have these conversations about what's happening yeah. with you. And, and what is the greater purpose behind the, the, the elements of your life as opposed to, well, this is a real ship or and this is a real hell and these are real prophets, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's that, do you literalize this or do you metaphorize this? Is that a word? Did that I is the word. We talked about this at that time. It is a word. Metaphorize great, great. is the word. Okay, yes. <laughs> metaphorize, yeah. Um, yeah, like, and, and I think like symbols, like once symbols should remain open and like not completely circumscribed and de and defined like i think as soon as you say this is exactly what this means you've killed it it can't breathe anymore it doesn't have its own life or autonomy if you say this is what it is and it is fixed and unchanging um it's like nothing nothing in this universe is like that you know so why why should symbols be um and you know, I and I also think the the there's an another layer of sophistication in this, where is if you think about this near death experience, this coma, like you can think of it like you would with dream analysis. Um, again, like these psychic states of consciousness, where our unconscious is communicating to us through symbol, and often often what our unconscious is doing is trying to tell our conscious mind something that it doesn't know. 
And so you, you can look at this whole episode as a really, as, as Torres confronting herself, mm-hmm. you know, of like, here's what you're not getting. And like, how do we, how do we make you get this? That you're driving away your friends, that you, that you've created your own hell. How can we make you understand this? Yeah, it's a to me it's a it's a very intentional aspect of the way the production design too in reinforcing that exact yeah. point is that so they came up with this rigging for the for the the boat for the barge which actually like is on a, a gurney and like chips and stuff to create this realism and there's lots of CGI which for the time was pretty advanced for a TV budget with all the the yeah. the things in the water and the gates and all that and then when it gets to the actual depiction of this is hell it's the Voyager sets with red lights and candles. And I think that's very intentional in that it's saying, and you know, there's no other actors. It's just the regular cast, right? It's saying like, Hey, um, hell is what's coming from within you. There's a, there's an aphorism about creating heaven on earth and all that. And like, there are certain sects of, uh, modern religion, which are, more metaphorical in their interpretation of of things where it's like about creating um paradise the the theology is creating paradise in in the real world as opposed to waiting for it after you die um but conversely with that goes the option of creating the negative afterlife in in the real world which is what we often do we often manifest the things that we are most afraid of it's like picard in the shadow it's 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 just like that where you're like mm-hmm. you, you you are um projecting that negative feet that fear and that um self-loathing that's a big part mm-hmm. of Torah's yeah. character into the people around you um in order yeah. to not confront it yeah like you you don't see the world as it is but as you are yeah and to me the, the most heartbreaking line is when she expresses her exhaustion defend yourself i don't know how i'm so tired of fighting we know and it's ironic because what is it to be a klingon in 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 this sage it's about being a warrior right and yet all of these these symbols it's such a wonderful sort of subversion because her coming back to a a very personalized version of her faith of her religious connection to her to her heritage is about letting go of the one thing that she definitely took with her besides the ridges from her Klingon heritage which is this instinct to always be fighting you know you're just like her lieutenant my mother you're as dedicated to Starfleet principles as she was to Klingon honor I know that we haven't always seen eye to eye. But despite our differences, you helped me become a good officer. And I'd like to think that you're proud of me for it. I am. My mother never had the chance to be proud of me. I'd like her to know me the way you do. And this whole experience transforms her. You know, that that's what she says. Like, this has changed me. And I can't go back to the way it was before. And... And it feels really healing and integrative. And she can finally, instead of keeping her Klingon heritage at an arm's distance, she can embrace it in her own way. And she doesn't have to fight it anymore. I'm sure this could be a Klingon philosophical argument, but is it 
Is the point of being a Klingon warrior to win or to fight? Hmm. That is a good question, which we're going to have to answer in another podcast. This is a whole other, whole other podcast or episode. Yes. Okay. Um, but not to not to get too much on the soapbox again, but it is, you know, for those who are detractors of Voyager and the continuity issue, which is a real complaint, I will just point out that if you look at Tora's episodes after this point, the rest of season six and season seven, she is different, profoundly different based on this experience. And I think that only serves to strengthen um, uh, an already good episode. So Elliot, why do you think so many cultures have devils? That is a good question. Um, I mean, the, the the glib answer, the simple answer is the same reason all cultures have gods, right, of, of one, mm. one sort or another. Um, and we always have the chiaroscuro in our, um, in our understanding of things. The balance is always the light meeting the dark, etc. Um, yeah. And one of the things that... Uh, is um, that that comes to mind is that the, the devil is at least from a Christian perspective, but I, I believe this is generally universal in terms of devils that pop up in other religions. The devil themselves is associated with temptation, right? This goes back to what we were talking about with uh, Lucian in um, the Magics of Magus Two, and yeah. if you actually look at the instances of the devil, the Christian devil in the Bible. Um, the association we make, I mean, if I ask you about the Garden of Eden and who tempted Eve, right, We what do we automatically think of? We think of... The snake? The snake, yes. But we, we think yeah. of that as being Satan, right? We th- that's just oh, Satan in the guise yeah. of a snake. That's not actually mentioned in the text, uh, for what it's worth. Oh, but okay. so strong is our association, and this is theological. This is not us yeah. making this association. This is made by people who crafted yeah, yeah. this religion over over centuries we are just reiterating their argument <laughs> we are not endorsing yes, the argument exactly but the the concept of attempt of a tempter is the association we make with the devil uh, and that mm-hmm. leads into faust of course um and one of the things which uh, the, the, you know the, the the purpose of that goes back to what you were talking about in terms of like we obviously temptation is a part of life and in a maybe more puritanical religious sense uh being tempted away from the straight and narrow path is evil right that is Mm. the association at least that it wants to be made um when that is your theological moralistic perspective on the universe is that well you need you need to do this you need to follow this path and so being tempted away from it is uh, being tempted away from being moral. We're trying to find balance in the universe and in ourselves. And and so much dysfunction comes from imbalance, both in ourselves and in the world, you know. Um, to, you know. And I think... I also want to say that part of what is evil is to say that evil is other and that evil is not me. Because that's also imbalanced, right? Mm-hmm. Like to think that I am only good right. and have no evil 
and I'm not capable of evil. That's you. You're going to hold all that for me, and I am just clean. Hmm. Like, does that sound balanced to you? No. And it's, but it's also yeah. externalizing it, which, of course, is what symbols are for. Um, yeah. In religion or outside think, of religion. But yeah. Yeah, but I think... I also think of the devil as kind of... I hear that temptation is a part of it, you know, but I, I also think it can kind of be a warning. So I'm reading a book um, right now called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I just read the section where she tells the story of a Native American um, mythos of a devil. And it's called the Wendigo. And it is a, it's a human who has turned to cannibalism and whose hunger can never be satiated. And the idea is, it's kind of a warning as well. It's like, it's like the boogeyman essentially like, Oh, don't do that. Or the boogeyman's going to get you. Um, but it's, it's also acts as this kind of like cultural warning against insatiable hunger. Like don't eat all your resources don't let your greed go unchecked because then you'll turn into this person who devours everything and destroys everything. Mm. And so I also think of it, I also think the devil can be thought of in that way of like, oh, this is a warning of something you are capable of and we're trying to show you why that's bad. And I, I, I think there's some value in that as well of like acknowledging that all, all these symbols come from human nature and we're trying to see it. And sometimes we're trying to see it in order to avoid it. I think that tracks. Um, and it's also one of the things that I'm appreciative about Star Trek's take on the devils uh, is that it subverts a lot of that the way it does very often yeah. with the concept of human nature one and the concept of belief and religion two, in that the, you know, you look at the devils in the episodes that we looked at today, um, Lucian, you know, he is supposed to be the actual Lucifer, at least some version of him who inspired the story, which made it into the Bible in terms of being cast out of, of, of heaven. Um, and we find out that the actual person is this fun loving, um, you know, guy who just wanted to bring some some magic <laughs> into the lives of human yeah. beings. Uh, Ardra um, perceived as a bringer of peace because of this reciprocity that we talked about, actually just a con artist preying on people's perceived neediness. And then with our Voyager episode, you'll, you, you remember that uh, Feklar, <laughs> the actual Klingon devil, um, yeah. is uh, portrayed in the TNG episode. We see it and it's this monster never shows up, even though we have Greythor and we have the Gates of Hell and we have Portar uh, oh, yeah. and all that. He never shows up in the vision of Hell, of Klingon Hell, because the devil in this case is actually Taurus herself, right? As we talked about. And mm. so this idea of the devil being this misunderstood concept where it's really a very useful kind of, I, would, I don't want to say good, but it's a function of our psychological makeup and our history that we can't um, just sort of uh, partition off into this, well, you're the reason I choose to do bad things because I'm tempted into the, yeah. onto the wrong path. Really, y- what you represent is just a facet of me that I need to confront. Yeah, you know, and, and that 
kind of going from black and white thinking to grayness is the process of psychological maturity. You know, when we're when we're all really young, you know, mom is good, dad is bad, um, you know, like this is my best friend and they're perfect and that other person is terrible. That's like you you only see things in black and white. They're all good or all bad. Yeah. Some people, some people never get past that stage. Now that you know, you, like you'll start to see it. Like now that I've told you that, some people never get past that stage. Um, and and but the more that you can see that no one is all evil and no one is all good, including the devil. Yeah. You know, like the the idea, like that's a very black and white either or split kind of thinking. But to realize that, like, oh there's good and bad in, in this symbol and there's good and bad in me and the kind of neurotic ambivalence of that all is the goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it brings to mind the question of the function of magic in, yeah. in, in culture, in psychology. I mean, I'm go, I'm going to posit that, the kind of magic that we see Spock do <laughs> with the chess pieces and all of that, or the kind of magic from, I don't know, fantasy stories or whatever, isn't real in the sense that it is not, it, it, it is a product of the imagination and the psyche. Um, I am open to challenges to that, to that, <laughs> that premise, but at the same time, it's one of those things like the devil that keeps showing up. Uh, regardless of whether yeah. or not it's 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 a it's a physical reality, um, it is a part of pretty much every culture on Earth in some respect, and I wonder what that is about. I wonder what that, as a symbol at the very least, is trying to tell us. So you know, Elliot, you and I, you and I are professional musicians, and as someone whose profession is other people's hobbies, my <laughs> hobby is astrophysics because I find that stuff fascinating. Um, and and to my and I bring that up just as context because I think about dark matter, mm. and I think about how there there is stuff in the universe that we can see exists based on like there's no way the universe would literally hold together if it wasn't for this stuff that we're calling dark matter, but we actually have no idea what it is. Mm -hmm. We just call it dark matter, and it's kind of like on the other end on the other side of the herventor. And it's like what happens in a black hole on the other side of the event horizon. Yeah. Like we can see the boundary and we can't see past it. And we know there's something there, but we don't know what it is. It's this black box. And I think magic's kind of like that. I think it's what we can't explain. Mm -hmm. I think that we can see that it's effects based on our lives and like the, the way that this is show its influence is showing up in our lives, but we can't explain it. And, and that to me, I think just speaks to this mystery of the universe that we are always trying to answer, but I don't think ever can fully approach in this version of consciousness and existence. Um, and I think that mystery is an important part of it is an important thing not to be solved. And mm. whether that's, ma you know, whether we call that magic or, you know, or try to rationalize it into science, I think there's just something there that like holds, holds this all together. And 
we can't explain it, but we know it's there. And sometimes we like to think we can influence it. And maybe we can. And maybe that's wishful thinking. But, you know, we, mm. everyone creates their own reality. You know, um, like your brain and my brain process the our sensations and stimuli in such different ways that we really experience different versions of reality, you know, and we're all these different versions of reality, just kind of like trying not to bump into each other and cause too much havoc, yeah. you know? Um, and, and so I, I, so I think magic is a way to try to understand the mystery of that influence of whatever it is. Uh, yes. Um, I'm going to push back slightly um, be okay. because so the, the example, but, and also agree with you, <laughs> but uh, the, what I'm going to push back on is this idea about the, 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 the mystery and the examples you cited from astrophysics about dark matter and the event horizons um, are at this point in time in 2023, those are beyond our ability to understand. We understand that we don't understand them. That's as far as our science has yeah. gotten today. Um, Whereas in the past, that limit of our understanding was much closer to home, right? Our understanding yeah. of what space was, what 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 solar flares are, what space time is, uh, even more recent or further back, what the rotation of the Earth is, things that now are very not mysterious, um, yeah. are very explicable. Um, we're at a certain point in the in our in the dark of our understanding as a species. And therefore, the explanations for how they function often fell into the camp of magic or, or spirituality, um, which is it's not a condemnation of any of those concepts, just just reality that our science has illuminated some of those dark corners at this point yeah. where they no longer have any magical potential. Um, and that has to get pushed further out into space where that stuff comes from or further down into the earth, whatever. Um, so in that respect, I, I want to say that at a certain point, those mysteries inevitably are going to be solved. But of course, after that point, there's going to be yet further mysteries, which will not be solved. And in that respect, I think I can agree with you in saying that um, Star Trek positions itself where our, 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 our heroes, our crew, usually are past some other character's point of understanding of the universe and the atheistic humans tend to believe correctly um in an evidence evidentiary way that the, the and whatever mysteries they encounter at some point are going to be solved even if they themselves are not the person going to solve them um and therefore their need for magical thinking is very diminished compared to the other species that they encounter um but the way you frame it in terms of meaning and in terms of well going inward the way like balana does where it's about trying yeah. to figure out something about herself no amount of understanding you know what happens to her in a scientific medical sense is fully explainable right she hit her head, had this experience, was thinking about her mom. She mentions that. My mother has been on my mind a lot lately. We just had a big anniversary. It's been 10 years since we talked. But it was so real. 
she's confronting these Klingon, this Klingon mythology, which she's engrossed in. It's all in the episode to say, here's what, quote unquote, really happened. She had this thing. She had this psychological trauma she needed to work through. This all happened in her head. End of story. Um, yeah. But that, the fact that there is no mystery there doesn't give her any resolution, right? That doesn't help her deal with what she's trying to deal with. Whereas confront dealing with this in a more mysterious, magical way, where there's a way in which she actually can resolve some of her issues with her mother, even though they can't be in contact because of the distance, physical distance that they're that the Voyager's in. Um, that magical transcendence of that limitation provides her character growth and some fucking peace, which she needs. And yeah, you, is that a fair <laughs> way to way to talk about that? Um. I think so, you know, but you're touching into an argument that I definitely do think is like for a whole other podcast, um, which is like, culturally, we have this kind of reductionistic thinking about what is the smallest singular source component that we can identify to explain experience. You know, you, you think about depression. And okay, so depression, okay, so you, you say, I'm gonna diagnose you with depression. And what that means is that you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and it might be serotonin. And we're gonna give you this drug that keeps the amount of serotonin in your brain and in your nervous system from being recycled so that you kind of have more serotonin in your system um, and that will cure your depression. Well. What does the lack, you know, like, so that that's like a very rationalistic potential way to describe depression. Mm-hmm. How does, how does the levels of serotonin in your body connect to feelings of hopelessness and of loss and of no interest and no pleasure? You know, so there, there's this kind of split between the biological explanation and then the phenomenological experience of it and we can see that there's this correlation like yeah like in depression when people who have depression like very often their serotonin levels are lower than people who do not report having depression but that's a correlation versus a causation like the thing that makes depression is so much more complicated than that i believe that there's a soul i believe that who we are is so much more than chemicals and neurons and things firing on our brain. And there is a gap between how do you explain the mind? Cause the mind is not the brain. And how do you explain the aesthetics of human longing, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so like, to me, there's this dark matter binding the two things together. Mm-hmm. They're connected, but we don't know how yet maybe that might be explained but i don't think explaining is the same as experiencing and making meaning and 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 that you know like you you know when you sit down with a therapist or a friend or you know a loved one you know they don't want you i don't want to be explained i don't want someone to explain to me who i am and why i am the way i am i want someone to understand me
Happy Halloween! <laughs> Happy Halloween, Elizabeth. We've, uh, as usual, taken a fairly comical concept, this devil with his hooved feet and his horns and all that, um, and mined a lot of deep meaning uh, to, to, to be discussed here, which, which is why I love doing this with you. But that process that we went through is not, um, it, there's an historical precedent for it. So we celebrate Halloween, and for those who don't know, uh, that's a <laughs> pagan-ish uh, version of a, a, a Christian celebration related to uh, All Souls Day, is what we call it, which is a, a whole um, series of theological uh, kind of obsessions with, with the dead and where they're going and what they're doing. Um, yeah. And of course, our, our most familiar connection to that in the West is with uh, Dia de los Muertos, which is an Hispanic uh, addendum to that particular uh, religious celebration where we're communing with and talking to and feeding our dead relatives uh, in anticipation of, of, the, of their journey. Um, my point being simply that our getting over obsessed with the nuances and, and, and depth of this kind of silly concept is historically precedented. Precedented, exactly. I've said it enough times that I know I'm, you know, a broken record, but it remains to be restated. This all comes from us trying to express an inner experience. And, you know, so many cultures, um, you know, around this, like, turn of the seasons, especially around fall, you know, like, the, the phrase I really like is, like, the veil is thin. Mm. The veil between the living and the dead, like, there's some, for some reason, it's thinner around here. And so we have, how can we access that? How can we make it thinner and, like, invite people to have this dialogue back and forth? And you see it in a lot of other cultures, too, like, in the dead of winter, you know, Alec, you know, is this light comes, you know, yeah. like, and so you have the darkness and the light and you have hope coming in times of great darkness. Like we're all trying to express these kind of ideas and they just come out in all these different ways, but it's all the same idea. Yeah. As we, as we were just saying, yeah. it is the magic and it is the science and they are different yeah. and yet the same. And that's, that's, that's the power of the devil here. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are going to be t talking about <laughs> green animal women uh, for our next episode, Elizabeth. Wait, what? Green, an <laughs> green animal women? By which I mean we're going to be talking about Orion's. Um, which oh that makes that not better <laughs> I know problematic <laughs> phrasing but it is not it, I didn't come up with it um, but I'm looking forward to talking about that with you next time thank you Elliot for you know finding all these amazing episodes and doing this podcast with me I really enjoy our conversations and it's just a delight to get to nerd out with you and um, make this really really fun and unique thing together Thank you to all our listeners, to our patrons. Please like, subscribe, leave us questions and comments. We'd love to hear from you. And please share with your friends who love nerdy sci-fi uh, psychology stuff. We know there's more of you out there. <laughs> Agreed. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for your insights. And thank you, everybody. And I will see you next time. Use the magic you know. Believe. <laughs>